Acts 28, verse 17, to the end of the chapter. Who knew? <laughs> Acts twenty-eight seventeen. After three days, he, Paul, called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Well, mission accomplished. Some of you thought it would never happen. We're finally here. The the book of Acts will reach its climactic end today. This is the end. And in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make, or so said Paul McCartney. (laughs) That lyric is far from clear, like many Beatles lyrics. As Paul McCartney later summarized it, though, to Chris Farley on SNL in an important interview, uh, he said it summarized as, the more you give, the more you get. And we have given the the better part of my tenure here to the book of Acts. And I hope we've gotten something from it. I've become kind of attached. I'm going to miss it. Uh, But all good things must end, and I'm sure there must be some other worthwhile book somewhere in here. So we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. But for 28 chapters, we have been tracking the Acts, not so much of the Apostles, as we have said, but of the Holy Spirit. And uh, Jesus sent him way back in the beginning of the book, as you'll recall, and and he promised, even before he sent him, that this Holy Spirit, this helper, was going to do even bigger and better things than what the disciples had seen during Jesus' tenure on earth. And this is true. We have found that to be true. We've had a front row seat to all of these things, these events. So, in Jesus' physical absence, the church has made incredible strides. Pentecost became the beginning of a viral movement of the Spirit throughout the empire 
and indeed throughout the world. And we see this as true even in today's passage. Again, as Paul enters Italy, he's never been there before, and yet we were told in the, the previous passage that brothers, Christians, greeted him in Puteoli, and they came from Appius, and they came from three taverns just to greet Paul, which means there are churches like scattered all over Italy. Just because Paul hasn't been there doesn't mean God was sitting still, right? That the Spirit's laying this framework for Paul to work with him. And so Luke tells us that, that Paul was encouraged to see this. Uh, because it always feels good to show up somewhere and find that the Holy Spirit is already there. That things are already in motion. It's kind of like walking into the house and seeing a clean kitchen. It doesn't happen often, but it has happened on occasion. And it feels like, well, somebody was already at work here, right? Or maybe it's more like coming downstairs in the morning and finding somebody already made the coffee. It's, it's that kind of thing. You know, it's comforting. The Spirit goes before us and he sets the table. And, and when we left off a couple of weeks ago, we left Paul under house arrest, not in a prison. It says that he's staying by himself, is how Luke put it. And that implies he had a house that he's rented, his own private quarters. And he does have a full-time Roman guard, we can assume, but he has some flexibility he can't maybe go out, really, but he's fairly comfortable in a, in a general sense. He's not locked up in a dungeon somewhere. But beginning in verse 17, we get to the actual meat, the record of what Paul does now that he's reached his goal, now that he's in Rome. And they say, you know, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. I'm not sure how that applies when you're under house arrest. I mean, I guess you can still drink wine. I don't know how you can womanize from home. I'm not really sure, but... Paul doesn't do what Romans do, does he? He does what Paul does. He reaches out to his fellow countrymen. This is his typical MO, right? He, he, he doesn't go to his fellow Roman citizens. He doesn't go first to the church. He goes first to his fellow Jews. I'm going to read again how he addresses them. It says, After three days he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case, but because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you because it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. So I want us to see just a few things right off the bat here. First off, a very subtle thing, the tense changes again, starting in verse 17. Uh, it is now the text from here to the end of the book is in the third person, so we take it that Luke has left the building. He's no longer with Paul physically. That's not particularly surprising. I doubt Rome would allow prisoners to have their friends move in with them. Uh, that would be a pretty weird arrangement, but I just want you to bear in mind Paul kind of stands alone here as the book closes out, other than his full-time guard. And also, as I mentioned before, Paul reaches out to the Jews first. I find that remarkable because Luke just told us that against all odds, they found Christian brothers in all these towns, right? But when he gets to Rome, Paul's first impulse is still to reach out to his countrymen. And he does this in every city he goes to, and yet somehow you expect maybe Rome would be different. Paul has talked to Jews all over the empire. The excitement of getting to Rome is not that he gets to see more Jews, right? That's like ordering a Philly cheesesteak in Montana. That's not why you went there, right? So why would you do that? And yet... Paul has this heart for his people. He always gives them first dibs on the gospel everywhere he goes. Jesus promised Paul that he would address kings, but he always calls on his people first. And I want you to notice also that he wastes no time in doing so. Luke says he waited three days. 
That may not sound too urgent. He took some time, right? But I think Paul's entitled to some rest after all the crazy he's experienced in the last few months, the the storms, the shipwrecks, the starvation, the snakes, right? Paul's been on the road for like half a year. I think he would be entitled to three days rest. But the more I'm thinking about it, the more I don't even think he really got that because this all required prep. This is Thanksgiving week, right? If I'm correct in keeping tabs on things, right? We've been trying, George and I, to, to pre-plan because we're hosting people. We're, we're having our parents overnight on Wednesday, and that means mapping out what's going to happen when, especially because I'm going on some fool's errand to Canada with Phil in the next couple of days. So that means a lot of mapping out who's going to shop and when they're going to shop and, and when we have to start thawing the turkey and the pork because we're doing both, because why not? And when do we need to start brining things? And is it cold enough to chill the beer in the cellar? And who's going to clean the bathrooms? And how are we going to keep them clean until company arrives? And this kind of thing. Can we fit enough chairs around the dining room table? I don't know. It takes work to host people. Amen? I better get an amen from the moms at least, right? And Paul is also not operating under normal circumstances to begin with. You know, he, he can't just go shopping. He is a prisoner, Right? So he needs to send people out to take care of these things. And he needs to send messengers and letters out to the Jewish leaders, too. And that's after he had to do the research to figure out which Jews are even living here and, and where they live and the work of actually finding them and preparing letters, you know, physical letters to send to them. And so Paul's not really had any resting time at all. Somehow, within 72 hours, he has called all the Jewish leaders in Rome to himself. And that takes some doing. And it's also interesting to note that there are Jews in Rome at all, bearing in mind that the Jews were expelled from Rome several chapters ago. In fact, that's how Paul met Priscilla and Aquila. They were Roman exiles uh, staying in Corinth. So evidently Nero has allowed the Jews back into Rome at some point after Claudius died. And as I mentioned back at that time when we got to that point, that this is like a recurring theme for Rome. Uh, the Jews often get blamed for things and get sent away, and then they get invited back. And so Romans and Jews have this very tenuous relationship. But that means that these Jewish guys that are coming to Paul, they know what it's like to be outsiders. So it doesn't necessarily bother them that Paul is a prisoner. In fact, being under arrest probably gives them some street cred with these guys because they know what it's like to be in trouble with Rome. But I want you to look just one more time at how Paul presents this case to them. He says, I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case, but because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar. You know, if he was looking to play to the crowd... That's kind of a strange way to go about it, because um, this would have been a good time and place to throw the Romans under the bus at this point, right? If, if Paul's looking to play the sympathy card, that would be the smart move, but instead he blames his situation on the Jews, his own people, and coincidentally his audience. Like, yeah, the Romans locked me up here, but it wasn't really their fault. I appealed to Caesar, and I only did that because the Jews wouldn't leave me alone. It's those Jews back in Judea what done it. And yet then he says the most amazing thing, he concludes all that with, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. Uh, I think if Paul thought long and hard enough, 
he might have been able to come up with some charges he could bring against his nation. I mean, does Paul have, like, temporary amnesia? Did he forget what he just said in the previous verse? Like, he doesn't remember things verse to verse? Kind of seems to me like the Jews are to blame for the whole situation. How can he possibly say such a thing? Well, I don't know that I can explain it logically, except to say that Paul still loves his people. And love doesn't look for the bad in people, and it doesn't seek their harm. It's not that the Jews had done nothing blameworthy. That's not what Paul says. It's, it's that Paul has no interest in playing the blame game. He doesn't want to bring charges. There's a general principle in any justice system that you can't try someone for a crime if no one brings a charge and if nobody actually got hurt. It's kind of like no harm, no foul, and you see this happen a lot. You see it happen even when people are very guilty. I mean, you know, kids will steal from their parents and parents won't bring charges. Why? Not because they're innocent, right? It's because they want to protect them. They don't want to bring charges. So Paul's not excusing his fellow countrymen. He's saying that he has no desire to speak ill of them or get them in trouble because he still loves them. And given the fact that we are only at this point in the story, a few short years away from the complete destruction of Jerusalem, this says to me, Paul feels like his Jewish brothers have enough trouble without him piling on. So he is gentle, he is forbearing, not wanting to condemn them. And he finishes up with this familiar theme in the second half of verse 20. I've asked to see you and speak with you since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. Paul is wearing chains, not because of the Jews, and not because of the Romans per se, he is wearing the chains for hope. The hope of Israel is why he is here. Contrary to all appearances, Paul considers himself to be here in Rome as an ambassador. He's here because God sent him here and because he wants to be. What is keeping him in Rome is not the chains. It is his duty to share this hope with them. This is a mission. It's not a mistake. And I I think the Jewish leaders have an interesting response, too. It says, they said to him, we've received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. I think this is interesting because these basic, basically these guys are saying, like, yeah, we were wondering what was up, Paul, and why you invited us, because honestly, nobody's mentioned you. Now, that's kind of hard to believe because Paul's used to being a lightning rod of controversy. He has a reputation throughout the empire. And, and he calls these guys here because he wants to make his gospel sales pitch, only to have them come in and be like, yeah, hi, Paul, you are... Like, they don't even know. It's, it's, it's almost insulting. Paul could be forgiven. People are like, what, nobody's mentioned me? I mean, for how many and how diverse enemies Paul keeps, it's sort of surprising that no rumors have reached Rome. It, it's like the Sanhedrin kind of just ghosted Paul is kind of what went on here. You know, like, they never write back. They pretend he doesn't exist. So the Roman Jews have no opinion of Paul at all. Which is significant because he comes into this city so small, really, to the point of irrelevance. In politics, they they sometimes will say that bad press is better than no press, right? Donald Trump elevated this to an art form. But it's true, even bad rumors have an upside because at least people are talking, right? It's creating a stir. 
If you've ever seen Pirates of the Caribbean, it's kind of like what Jack Sparrow says when he first gets arrested early in the movie. The guy says to him, you are without a doubt the worst pirate I have ever heard of. And Jack says, but you have heard of me. Paul has had no press at all, though. Nobody has heard of him. There are no letters, no bad reports. These guys have no expectations of him at all. There's no welcome committee, but there's no unwelcome committee either. They just didn't care. However, what they have heard is some dirt about this sect. We've heard a lot of dirt about these Jesus people. That word is everywhere. You know who's the talk of the town? Not Paul, Jesus. And that's as it should be. We would rather people be offended by Jesus. It's better for everyone to be talking about him than about us. But what they're saying is everyone in the empire is talking about how dangerous this Jesus movement is. And all these guys know is that Paul is now claiming to be one of them. And it sounds like they only know this maybe because of the invitations he sent out. This sect... This Jesus movement is trashed by everyone we talk to. If you go to any street corner in Rome, that's going to be part of the gossip. How is this, this Jesus stuff going on in all the various cities? It's dangerous. We don't like it. That's what people are talking about. We'd like to hear more. It's like, what? <laughs> we desire to hear what your views are. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, that sounds like a wide-open invitation to preach the gospel at this point. So the Holy Spirit has a funny method of paving a way. Let Jesus' reputation open the door. It doesn't have to be a good reputation, just let it open the door. And so a not-so-promising start ends up resulting in this massive convention in Paul's little prison house, right? says, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to, to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Again, several things to notice in that little part. Uh, one is that these guys did come with an open mind. They had never heard a positive thing about Jesus, and yet they came, and they gave Paul the entire day, morning till night, to preach at them. And I think the best takeaway you can take from that is just the simple fact that the gospel is not deterred by bad press. Jesus isn't worried what the newspapers say or what the talk around the water cooler is. He may be the worst thing they ever heard of, but they have heard of him, and that makes people curious, and Jesus can work with that. But the other obvious thing to notice is that it doesn't end well. Paul, as always, doesn't depend on like private revelations or anything like that. He, he roots his argument in the Old Testament, the law, and the prophets. He is proclaiming to his fellow Jews a thoroughly Jewish savior. And the results are kind of mixed. Some are convinced 
and they believe there's something to this argument. Now, I don't know if what is described here is saving faith or not, but they at least find the argument coherent. It makes sense that this Jesus could be the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, and then you have others who reject the argument, and by the end, they're arguing among themselves, but Luke says that once it reaches that fever pitch, they, Paul drops this quote from Isaiah 9, and they all walk out. And Isaiah's words kind of cut like a knife because he says to them that their hearts are dull, that they're blind and deaf, but the worst part is that he says that they are this way by choice. Isaiah paints a picture of people with their heads down, eyes shut, fingers in their ears, and whistling so that they can avoid God. The God who's standing there waiting to heal them. And it's because of that stubbornness that the gospel will turn to the Roman Gentiles, and Paul says they will listen. That's a heavy word from Paul to his countrymen, and it's perhaps not too surprising that the entire crowd walked out at that point, even those who were convinced. I, I had a friend in Philadelphia who used to do street evangelism with, a, with a, another guy who's actually a, a member of this presbytery, but uh, I never went with them, but it was interesting when he was describing their method to me. Um, he said that they never wasted time on people unless they wanted to talk. Because I was sitting there thinking, like, how do you confront people and how do you get them engaged? He's like, we don't bother if they're not interested. We let them go. And for some reason that struck me as funny because I, I tend to think of street evangelism as being sort of this confrontational act, you know, full contact sport. You know, I think of the Mormons and I think of the Jehovah's Witnesses and I, I think of the, like, the religious zealots handing out the flower from the Church of Religious Consciousness, an airplane at the uh, airport. You know, this is, this is what I envision. And, and as a Christian, I instinctively avoid street evangelists because I kind of figure, like, look, if they're preaching Christ, I already have him, so they might as well invest in someone else. And if they're not preaching Christ, they're wasting my time. So I keep my head down, I keep moving, right? Uh, but it, it does make sense as a Christian not to waste your breath on people who are tuning you out. Paul affirms this repeatedly throughout Acts, and he does it again here. If you guys won't listen, you might as well go home. And sadly, that's what they do. This results in everyone storming out, leaving Paul with the mess of dishes, a house to clean, and a heavy heart. Now, I would say I am convinced that some of these Jews probably genuinely did believe, and I, I'm sure Paul didn't shut them out entirely and for good. Paul never refuses the gospel to anyone who's ready to hear it, but his mission and focus has to change because it makes no sense to waste words on people who won't listen. And so as the house empties out, Paul is alone with his Roman guard, who I can just imagine chuckling in the corner of everything that just went on. And that would be a strange and sad way to end this book. A terribly disappointing scene. Paul has come so far, he gets an audience in Rome, and his first audience, this first big meeting, unexpectedly, all these guys were willing to come, and it falls flat, which leaves a bad taste in the mouth. This would be a bad ending. But Luke provides a tiny little epilogue, two verses, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So our story ends with a declaration of victory. 
Jesus has fulfilled his promise. Paul is now in Rome, and in a sense, the gospel has now reached the ends of the earth, as Jesus promised in chapter 1, because Rome sort of symbolizes the world in this book. The world lives in Rome. It does its business. It worships. It pays homage. It begs for mercy in Rome. So Paul didn't need to go to the entire world. In Rome, the world will come to him. So Luke seems to declare victory here. But it's kind of a strange victory, and it seems kind of weak almost in a sense. Some of you may remember how years ago when President Bush was in office, I forget it in response to which of the wars we were involved with, but he stood on a, a Navy ship and he had a banner behind him that declared mission accomplished. And his political opponents mocked him for years over this because the war kind of dragged on forever long after he gave this speech. And this kind of feels like the mission accomplished moment in Acts. On paper, it doesn't really look like much of a victory at all. I mean, yeah, Paul's alive. That's great. And he's in Rome. That's good. Uh, but he's still confined, and he doesn't get to go do any public preaching anywhere on the streets. He can't do that. And oddly enough, the book ends without confirming what becomes of him. It says he lived there for two years. Well, then what happened? Kind of seems logical uh, that Paul was released at that point and must have been rearrested later. Historians generally hold there were multiple imprisonments of Paul, and Paul's epistles seem to confirm that. But it also seems certain that Paul spent pretty much the rest of his life in Rome until he was executed, but we don't get a record of his great achievements there. Luke just stops. He was supposed to speak before kings. That was part of the promise, and yet we have no record of his hearing with Nero. This passage doesn't even confirm that the church in Rome is growing, does it? So is it a happy ending or not? I certainly hope so, and it seems to be that that's Luke's tone. He wants us to walk away encouraged. Luke doesn't add anything, partly because the story was still ongoing when he published it, and the story still continues today. There's a whole network of churches, some of you may be familiar with, called the Acts 29 Network, and it's clever because there is no Acts 29, right? See, get it? The book is still being written. It's very clever marketing, but it's also true. If, as we have said from the beginning, that this book is not primarily about the acts of the apostles, it's about the acts of the Holy Spirit, then of course the story continues. The Spirit is still active, and the story isn't over. And even if you were to stop right there and, and not think about it any further, there's several applications we can make even from, from the, the, the previous passage there of Paul's final recording with the Jews, even if the results are disappointing. Because you see like the fact that he doesn't avoid a tough crowd. In fact, he invites the tough crowd, right? The fact that he's willing to align himself with Jesus, even though Jesus is the unpopular one. The fact that opposition to the gospel drives curiosity about the gospel. That's an applicable thing. The fact that the gospel is not bound even when the messenger is. The fact that the world lives in Rome, you could read that as a validation of urban missions. If you preach in a cosmopolitan city, the world comes to you. That's all well and good. Every one of those things is true. It would be a great way to end our study. But I was sort of left with a question because I'm still wondering why does Luke end the book this way? And why? what does he want us to see here? He gives a very detailed description of the disappointment of Paul's meeting with the Jews. That he has a lot of detail about. And then he gives this very abbreviated ending 
with very little detail about what happens next. And Luke seems to be optimistic, but how do we apply it? Maybe the bigger question is, what is the ultimate message of this book? What does Luke want us to walk away thinking about? Well, I think what he closes with is a snapshot of ministry in enemy territory, which is really how we live, right? He doesn't give, he doesn't give us a picture of the results. He gives us a picture of the method and of the attitude. What is Paul actually doing in these last two verses? Well, he's modeling ultimate hospitality, which has been such a big theme throughout this book, and we've talked about it again and again. Whatever money Paul has left after all his adventures and misadventures, he spends in entertaining people. He lives at his own expense, meaning he's paying the rent, he's paying for the food, he's paying for the wine, he is the consummate entertainer. He cannot leave the house, and yet his hospitality is unparalleled, and people come to him. And he turns nobody away. But he is also the consummate preacher. He proclaims the gospel to everyone who comes through that door. No one leaves his house without meeting Jesus and without knowing that he is the risen king. He proclaims, he teaches, he proclaims a kingdom, and he proclaims the king. He preaches, but he also catechizes. He proclaims the gospel, but without ignoring the doctrinal details. Paul covers all the bases. And the last thing Luke wants to impress on us is Paul's boldness. Everything he does is marked by boldness. He is not hindered, not by the soldier that's guarding him, not by the Jews, not by the government. He is the freest man alive in spite of his chains. Now that's really cool. And I think Luke wants us to walk away encouraged by this book. I think he is ending on a hopeful note, even if it's an incomplete note. With a method and an attitude like this, we are walking away with no doubt that Paul will succeed. The church will grow, and the gospel will spread, and Christ will be proclaimed. But somehow, I kind of walked away wanting a little more. Maybe just a few more verses to demonstrate how this would work. I want to see how it ends. And if I can speak, frankly, I, I... Wanted to just share, I've been struggling this week. Um, Several things have come up, some small, some big, and and they're the kinds of things where most of them in isolation wouldn't be that big a deal, but somehow together it all kind of became overwhelming, and I was feeling very discouraged midweek. And I spent some of the second half of the week at at moments being kind of on the verge of of hopeless about things and and almost cynical at times. I did feel a little bit better by last night, and I feel a little better today. Uh, But it kind of reminded me, in in the movie It's a Wonderful Life, you know, in the very beginning when the the stars are kind of, it's supposed to be the angels talking to each other there, and uh, they call in Clarence, that, that, you know, misfit of an angel, and... uh, they tell him, you know, someone down on earth needs our help. And he says, is he sick? And he says, no, worse, he's discouraged. And when I was young, I thought that sounded ridiculous. I used to laugh at it, actually. But as my friend Dave observed, it is a profound truth. And I felt that way at times this week. And coming to the end of this book was kind of almost depressing, partly because I'm going to miss this book, but also because I chose this book because I thought... It would spur us on to great heights. 
that we would see great growth, that it would challenge us to go out and evangelize our neighbors, that it was going to lead us to invite people to church. It's going to get us energized. We're going to get excited. And as I come to the end of it, I don't feel particularly energized, at least this week, and not terribly excited. So I came to the end of it, and I thought, well, did it work? Of course it worked. I mean, it's the word of God, but I, you know... in my weaker moments and in my flesh, I look and I think, well, I don't know. I don't see huge, obvious numerical growth. I sometimes catch myself committing David's sin of, like, conducting a census in my head, you know. I, I, I count people in the pews and that kind of thing, you know. Uh, and, and I see some new faces, and then I see empty spaces for people who have left. I, I see a building with problems and expenses and budget issues and and, and on top of that, it's like I, I know some of our people are really struggling. Some of you have had a, a bad week, far worse than mine. And some of you have had a rough year. And thinking about all of this, all in all, by Wednesday afternoon, I think I just felt tired. And I looked at this final paragraph of Acts, and I asked myself, what are we doing different? Or maybe more bluntly, are we doing something wrong? And what does Paul have that we don't? Well, the proper theological answer to that question is nothing. We, we, we have Christ, which means we have the words of life. We have everything we need. We even have a few extra things. We're not locked up, for one. And we, we have our own building, and we have fancy new hymnals, and we have a state-of-the-art coffee maker, even if nobody knows how to use it. So what are we missing? And the more I thought about it, the more I thought maybe it's the attitude. Because the point for Luke, as he comes to the conclusion of this story, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as he comes to the end, the point for him is not the results, but the method and the attitude. And that's what I think he wants us to see. Mission accomplished doesn't look like a megachurch in downtown Rome. For Paul... Mission accomplished is an attitude that comes from faith. Luke gives us a picture not of Paul's success, but Paul's method. And the formula is actually quite simple. He welcomes everyone, he teaches everyone, and he is bold with everyone. Hospitality, the gospel, and attitude. His house church is welcoming, proclaiming, and bold. And Paul is not discouraged by disappointments like I am even coming fresh off of a failure like what he just dealt with, because he's come too far to worry about all of that, and the one he serves is faithful. And Paul knows that because he's living it. Jesus kept his promise to send witnesses to the end of the earth because Paul's it. Rome is the ends of the earth, and Paul wasn't even a believer when God made the promise. But God plays the long game, and as the book comes to a close, the fulfillment of that promise has already happened. Jesus has been faithful. The promise of Jesus in chapter 1 is not some hypothetical future event. Luke's entire purpose in writing this book is to show that Jesus has already kept his promise, and that the gospel has reached the ends of the earth, and it is still reaching the ends of the earth, even in Allentown. And even if we can't see how it ends... Like I said, we have a lot more going for us in some ways than Paul did. Uh, He worked with what he had, and Jesus used that. 
And all he had was a rented house and a food budget. And yet people came. God brought them, and Paul fed them all with bread and with the word. And everyone that visited him left with a full belly and the hope of the gospel. No one went home without hearing about the hope of the resurrection, forgiveness of sins, everlasting life, eternity with Jesus in glory. And that gospel work, it did come at an expense. Because to evangelize all day, every day, in one's home, that would require an open buffet and catering and wine by the gallon. This becomes expensive. No host worth his salt doesn't feed his guests. And Paul had many guests. And Luke mentions, once again, that Paul did this at his own expense, but it was worth the investment. For two years, Paul evangelized the city from his living room. And history makes clear that the kingdom did grow. And the gospel went out even if Paul couldn't, because God brought people in and God brought the growth. And ironically, Rome stood by and provided security. So that's our challenge, I think, as we close this book out. The only difference between LVPC and what Paul's doing here, the only difference between me and Paul, I think is probably the attitude. If we are discouraged, it is because we have forgotten what Paul has not that Jesus is faithful and has promised to build his church. The mission was accomplished before we even got started. We serve one who said it is finished and he meant it. And he was building his church just fine before we ever showed up here. So, let's be bold, brothers and sisters. Even in the face of disappointment, we already have Christ. What else do we need? Our king is on his throne as we celebrate today, and even his enemies are curious to know more. So let's keep paying the bills. Let's keep eating together. Let's keep welcoming people. Let's keep teaching them. And let's keep proclaiming the gospel to everyone who comes through those doors. And let us do it boldly without hindrance. If a prisoner can do it, so can we. Because we serve a king who cannot be shackled and who never gets discouraged. And we are citizens of a kingdom that is more real than the reality around us. Amen? Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you as always for your word. We thank you for this terrific book of Acts that you have put in here, Lord, for our encouragement to see and to know how your spirit is active, Lord. And our situation may look different, but the fact is, is that the story is ongoing. This is not just a, a, a track record of things that have happened in the past. It's that too, but it is a picture and, and inner, of the inner workings, really, of the kingdom and the activity of your Holy Spirit, who is with us even now, in our midst, Lord, residing in us. Lord, I pray that that would be encouragement to us, Lord, that you would help us as a church to live faithfully. Lord, to have the attitude that comes with knowing that Jesus is on the throne. To have a boldness, Lord, in the way that we approach people, Lord, in the way that we talk about the gospel, Lord, the way that we present the hope of Israel, and not only of Israel, but of the world. Help us to believe it so much that we can't help but share it. Help it to ooze out of us. Bring people into these doors, Lord, as well, that they may hear the gospel. And may we never send any of them home hungry. 
And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.